You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 89, The British Empire, Part 4, Rearmament. This week, a big thank you goes out to Zachary, Evan, Brian, Martin, and Eric for choosing to support the podcast by becoming a member. All members get access to ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes, plus special member-only episodes roughly once a month. Head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com members to find out more. When discussing British actions before the Second World War, there are two topics that are exceptionally difficult to discuss or to analyze in any way due to how they interact with later events. The policy of appeasement is of course one of these, and the questions of if the correct decisions were made and what effect those decisions had on the future course of events seems to get a new book about it about every other year. The other is around rearmament. To add to the confusing soup in need of analysis, the two topics then intertwine together. Was the appeasement path pursued to allow time for rearmament? Did belief in appeasement prevent rearmament from happening sooner? Over the next three episodes, we will discuss the British rearmament efforts in the last half of the 1930s to try and get some kind of handle on these questions. During this episode, we will discuss some of the economics of rearmament, some policy decisions that were made around war profiteering, and then how early rearmament efforts affected the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force. Then next episode, we will look at the far less discussed British Army, before the third episode takes a wider view of British preparations for war. The three key questions to keep in mind during these episodes are, did the British make good choices around what to spend rearmament funds and effort on? Was rearmament started soon enough? Did appeasement meaningfully contribute to rearmament delays? It has been a few episodes, so I will also reiterate my warning that I know I've repeated a few times throughout the show. Nobody knew when or if a war would start. Nobody knew where or if a war would start. This was particularly true during the early phases of rearmament during the mid-1930s, It would be during those early years that so many important decisions would be made that would impact the state of British preparations in September 1939. And in those early years, there was no looming threat of imminent war. There was no European state that had already expanded its borders by conquest. And instead, all of the conversations and decisions around rearmament 
had to make sense in the peacetime economic and political context. So, with those disclaimers out of the way, we have to dip into the most important topic around rearmament, economics. In the immediate aftermath of the First World War, there were very quick and large reductions in overall military spending, both in Britain and in almost every other country involved in the conflict. It was, of course, expected after fighting such a long and exhausting war. But for the British, given their large imperial commitments, there were some limitations on how much the military budgets could be reduced while still being able to control and administer the large areas of the world under British control. This, along with just a general reluctance to cut military spending too much, meant that for most of the 1920s, the overall defense budget was not that much different than it had been in the years before the First World War. It would still be a challenging set of economic circumstances for the British government. In a reversal of most of modern history, the British government would also find itself deeply in debt to another nation, the United States. This would become more important after 1929, when there was growing insistence that the debt be repaid in the depths of the worldwide financial crisis. These payments would eventually end in 1934, even though there was still a pretty large outstanding balance. Moving off the gold standard in 1931 solved many of the issues experienced by the British economy during the Great Slump, and when it was combined with various forms of imperial economic preference, it allowed for a sizable economic recovery to begin, a recovery that would be critical to later rearmament. Defense spending would also begin to rise in the mid-1930s, especially after 1934. It was during that year that serious discussions began both about rearmament in general, but also the best areas that money should be spent to achieve the greatest benefit. This would be a hotly debated topic, as it always was, with the various military branches jockeying for funds, and political leaders having their own preferences. For example, Neville Chamberlain, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer during some of these years, strongly favored the Royal Air Force. These types of disagreements would happen in every nation during the 1930s, as each military branch thought that they were the one that needed more resources, and they would lobby political leaders for their support. While the discussions about what the money should be spent on would be ever-evolving, the one thing that remained constant was the overall growth in defense spending. In 1935, it would reach the levels that it had not been at since the early 1920s, ending over a decade of steady contraction. It was also in these mid-1930s years that you start seeing the really large rearmament programs defined and debated. Rearmament is, was, and probably always will be a long game, depending on years and years of spending. And the way to gain the most benefit is to plan that spending years in advance so that the industrial resources can be adjusted accordingly. At the start of 1936 is when you start seeing plans like the one billion pound rearmament program that would span the next five to six years. These were very large numbers in the context of overall government spending, and also, inevitably, the Treasury began to push back. In these early years, there was certainly some pushback on the total spending, but nothing like what would come later. Instead, during the mid-1930s, most of the discussions involving the Treasury would tie back to not exactly how much, but simply how the money would be spent, and if it was being spent efficiently. The Treasury would also become involved in trying to make sure that the rearmament efforts could be paid for, Paying for rearmament was important given how quickly spending was expanding. For example, the British Army would move from a budget of £44 million in 1935 
all the way up to 121 million pounds in 1938, before again doubling that number before the next year. This type of budget growth demanded that government loans be taken out, which would be a major way to finance some of these activities, with the defense spending rapidly relying on larger and larger loans. More loans reduced, but in no way halted, the reductions in the British gold reserves, which were also used to finance additional government spending. There was also some adjustments to government income, with one instance of of there being an increase in the income tax in April 1936, sort of as an example of what they were doing. But increasing taxes was always a tricky business, because the worst thing for rearmament in peacetime was for the economy to begin to stall. This also tied into larger concerns among the Treasury and some British economic leaders, the ability of the nation to wage a war once it started. Similar conversations would also occur in France, and so we've kind of talked about this topic before, in that there was some level of concern that if Britain spent too much on rearmament before a war started, then it would compromise the ability of the nation to finance a war once it did. This set up a tricky situation in which every month that rearmament continued, the British military grew stronger, which was really good. But British financial resources to continue rearmament were reduced, causing great concern. Beyond the budgetary aspects of rearmament, there was also many other decisions that would have to be made along the way. Some of these decisions revolved around trying to utilize the available workers, and especially individuals in skilled trades, in an optimal way. During rearmament, there would very quickly become a shortage in many trades that were necessary for rearmament. This required conversations and negotiations between the government, industrial leaders, and the workers themselves. In the government, the conversations were around how to shift production from civilian industries to rearmament industries. The easiest method of reconfiguring production would have been to sort of increase government control so that they could move workers around as required. But that was generally avoided during the early years of rearmament. Instead, money was used, with rearmament contracts generally costing more due to employers paying more for their labor to maximize supply. But just pumping more money into the system brought with it its own set of problems around inflation and the downsides of trying to reduce civilian production. Here is a note from the annual report for the National Federation of Building Trade Employers. Quote, Higher wages cannot create a larger supply of skilled labor and that a governmental policy which encouraged overbidding for such labor would result merely in forcing up costs, disorganizing the industry, and jeopardizing the normal trade upon which the prosperity of the country so much depends. End quote. You might, quite logically, expect that workers would like this new flow of money, especially if it translated into higher wages. But it was a bit more complicated than that. The concerns from the unions were all based around control. The agreements made between the unions and the employers were all based around negotiations and balancing. Then the government comes in and starts purposefully altering that balance and influencing where and how money was being spent. At the same time, the government was also trying to expand the skilled workforce, as well as change what had previously been considered skilled positions to unskilled positions taking them out of the control of the union. While some of this concern was simply sort of protectionism, you know, the the union members wanting to protect their relatively privileged position within industry, 
There was also other concerns about the long-term consequences of the changes that the government was pushing for. Doubling the number of bricklayers to meet current demand was probably fine, but were they guaranteed to have work in the future? Many industries had already went through the boom and bust cycle of the First World War, with industries massively expanding during the war and then contracting as soon as it was over. None of these concerns would halt rearmament, but it did require a constant set of negotiations between employers, workers, and the government that would occur throughout the entire time before the start of the war. As rearmament demands changed, as the government wanted more to be built, but the workers and the employers felt that they needed to protect their positions. Another side of all this money being pumped into rearmament was on the side of the employers, because it prompted renewed conversations about who was getting that money, how much they were profiting from it, and whether or not they were taking advantage of the public. This had been a major point of friction during the First World War, when so much of British economic and industrial output had been reconfigured to armament production. While more and more money was being spent from the government, the workers had been asked to work longer shifts and longer hours, and it was felt that the industrialists had been allowed to keep their own costs under control through the suppression of wages. This created some animosity as there were feelings that business owners were reaping huge profits, while workers were both not getting compensated fairly for what they were being asked to do, but they were also suffering under you know, increased inflation, and they were constantly being asked to support the war effort through war bonds and, and to pay higher taxes to pay for the war. These concerns then very quickly resurfaced in the early 1930s, with the general assumption being that wages would be under some level of control from the government, but it was hoped that the government would take action to prevent excess profits. From the side of the working public, this issue became wrapped around the merchants of death concept, which was basically that too many businesses were benefiting from the suffering of the men at the front and the increased sacrifices being made by society on the home front. To try and head off some of these concerns, the Royal Commission on the Private Manufacture of and Trade in Arms was created and it hosts 22 public sessions. But it was almost entirely just for show. And when the commission did finally release its report, it recommended greater government control of industry and it was entirely ignored. Unfortunately for workers, the leaders within the government felt that they needed the support of business leaders if free armament was going to be successful. To do anything else would require a drastic reworking of business and government relations in 1930s Britain, and that was, quite frankly, never going to happen. This meant that pretty much all of the early rearmament work would be done in close cooperation with business owners, with no real controls placed on them until May 1939. Because of this lack of tight controls in the 1930s, it was a really good time to be a business owner in armament or armament-adjacent industries. There were still benefits that would be felt by workers, and wages for some workers would increase over the last half of the 1930s. But there were limits on those increases for all of the reasons that we previously discussed. While British rearmament efforts were ramping up after 1936, there would of course always be some British political leaders that did not feel that it was progressing fast enough, or even felt that it was progressing too quickly. And in fact, appeasement should be coupled with renewed disarmament talks instead of, you know, increasing rearmament efforts. On the not fast enough side of complaints, you would have men like Winston Churchill, who would spend most of the early 1930s criticizing the lack of preparedness among the British military. 
On the other side, there were many individuals, for their own reasons, that pushed for greater efforts for peace. The stereotypical person in this group might be somebody who strongly supported the peace movement, or was a pacifist, but this was not always the case. In his book Britain at Bay, Dr. Alan Allport points out some of the people who supported appeasement did not do so out of support for peace, but out of concern for what another world war might mean for British society. Quote, when we consider why some Britons were attracted to the national government's appeasement policy in the late 1930s, it's important to remember that, as far as many of them were concerned, it was not just the international balance of power that was at stake. The cost of another world war would be measured not just in lives, terrible though that might be, war would also accelerate the rise of a new kind of egalitarian democracy, which they thought would be coarse, unprincipled, and irreversible. They knew that any such conflict would be a people's war, and they hated the idea. End quote. I really like that quote because it's a good example of how people's motivations are often quite complicated and can go far beyond just, we need more guns, we need less guns, or I want peace, I want war. You know, there's, there's a lot of complexities there that you have to think about. During the early years of growing your armament, so say 1936 until the Munich crisis, both of the groups in British society, those who wanted more rearmament or those who wanted less, had their own set of arguments on why the government should take their preferred action based on usually actually semi-reasonable analysis. Unfortunately, when we look at the arguments today, it's almost impossible to evaluate them without that analysis being tainted by what comes later. Those who supported faster and larger rearmament would point to events like the Japanese expansion in Manchuria, or the Italian expansion in Abyssinia, or the Spanish Civil War, as reasons that Britain needed to put more resources into defense. In retrospect, from April 5th, 2022, those evaluations were absolutely correct. There is, after all, a reason we've covered all those events on this very podcast. But in 1936, or early 1937, that conclusion had far less evidence, especially in the case of Venturi and Abyssinia. It was one of those situations where, if a particular person guessed correctly on the future course of events, they looked like a genius for predicting what would happen. In this case, they would have been trumpeting that they'd been predicting for years that a war was going to start soon, but it was impossible for them to predict when it was going to happen. And when it came to rearmament, the win really mattered. Because what you built in 1936 was very different than what you would have built in 1938. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, all of this economic and political disagreement was all about how, when, and why to spend money on the British military. And that primarily meant the Army, Royal Navy, and the Royal Air Force. Among the three, the most complicated path through rearmament belonged to the Army, which would have many problems throughout the entire interwar period in getting and maintaining a funding level that would allow it to keep up with its worldwide commitments. The story of the British Army is complicated enough that we're actually going to be spending all of next episode on it, and so instead today we will focus just on the Royal Navy and the RAF. When considering the Royal Navy, it's important to remember that in September 1939, when Germany invaded Poland, the Royal Navy was the most powerful navy in the world. The problem was that it had a vast array of commitments that constantly pulled its resources all over the globe. I like this quote from British Sea Power and Procurement Between the Wars, a reappraisal of rearmament by G.A.H. Gordon. Quote, the Second World War, as it happened, was an extraordinarily unlikely strategic nightmare. Britain's whole defense planning presupposed the active participation of France in a major European war. Had the chiefs of staff or the joint planning committee been asked to allow for her defeat, they would have replied that to sustain hostilities in such circumstances was simply not a viable proposition. End quote. Having the war develop as it did, with Germany, then Italy, then Japan, joining the ranks of Britain's enemies, was almost a worst-case scenario. The only thing that really could have made it worse would have been a war with the United States, which fortunately the Royal Navy was never really close to. Even before the war started, the first 30 years of the 20th century had been a period when British sea power had been challenged like it had not been since the Napoleonic Wars. The Anglo-German naval arms race before the First World War, and then the threat of another naval arms race after 1918, had caused the great naval powers of the world to come together to sign the Washington Naval Treaty, which limited the size of all major naval powers. The drastic naval budget cuts that followed then caused a large contraction within the British shipbuilding industry, which was then followed by the Great Slump, both of which left British shipbuilding in a much worse place than it had been in many years. Within the Navy itself, there were also some challenges, with events like the Invergordon Mutiny pointing to internal challenges that the Navy was having as its budgets continued to decrease, and times just changed. By the mid-1930s, the British fleet was also aging, with most of its large capital ships being pre-First World War vintage, with the Revenge and Queen Elizabeth classes, both of which had not had major modernization efforts since the mid-1920s. While the list of challenges faced by the Royal Navy would occupy an entire episode, it is worth mentioning that many other nations were facing the same economic and shipbuilding problems, 
and that is without considering the changes in naval technology that everyone would have to deal with in a future war, changes that all navies were reacting to differently. Nowhere was this evolution more important than in the sphere of naval aviation. The relationship between the Royal Navy and the fleet air arm was very complicated, and this was caused by the fact that for most of the interwar period, the fleet air arm was actually under the control of the Royal Air Force. This caused administrative challenges, but most importantly, it caused naval aviation to be ranked against other Royal Air Force concerns when it came to budget allocation. This made it difficult for the Admiralty to get the resources that it thought it needed. This arrangement would eventually change in the years before the war, but it would take time for the Royal Navy to take full control and shift the fleet air arm to be fully under the control of the Royal Navy. One thing that would not be lacking in any way in the years before the war was the funds or willingness to begin a massive expansion of the Navy. Was the Royal Navy capable of protecting Britain from all overseas threats? No. It had lost that status with the advent of strategic bombing. But there was no denying its general importance to the survival of Britain and the Empire. It would be based on this fact alone, along with the tradition and prestige of the Royal Navy, that there would be an absolutely massive construction effort that would begin in 1937. Large numbers of destroyers, frigates, and anti-submarine ships would be built for the protection of British commerce. 23 cruisers would also start construction. At the top end, five King George V-class battleships would be laid down, with their successors, the Lion-class, also in planning, with two being laid down before the start of the war. Along with this construction, there would be efforts to modernize some of the older battleships, starting with the Queen Elizabeth-class, and efforts that would... <coughs> Along with this new construction, there would be efforts to modernize some of the older capital ships, starting with the Queen Elizabeth-class, an effort that would eventually be interrupted by the start of the war. There would also be six aircraft carriers eventually under construction. All of this represented the largest naval construction effort anywhere in the world before the war. I think at times the efforts of the Royal Navy during this period get unfairly criticized for a few reasons, mostly because they exist within the context of the naval construction programs of the United States that would occur in the years that follow that basically dwarf anything anybody else had ever done. But of course, the entire theme of these pre-war episodes is to try and judge things based on their own time, not based on what was to happen later. And based on those metrics, what the Royal Navy created before the war was quite impressive and, and innovative compared to what was happening elsewhere. One area that I would point to as an example of this would be in the area of aircraft carrier numbers and design. The British were building the most aircraft carriers in the world, and one of the decisions that they made that can at times come under some criticism, was the choice to have an armored flight deck and an enclosed hangar on all British carriers. This decision had some pretty critical upsides, especially around the survivability of the ships, but there were also some drastic downsides when it came to how many aircraft each carrier could operate. This was a serious downside, and in some cases British carriers would only be able to carry half of the number of planes that American or Japanese carriers could actually have. But the choice was made for a very good reason. The British carriers were almost certainly going to be operating in the North Sea and the Mediterranean. In the vast expanses of the Pacific, where the other major carrier fleets planned to operate, there were vast expanses of oceans, with only very small areas of land spread throughout on which to base aircraft. Even if you included all of an enemy's carriers, 
There were generally a very finite number of planes that could be launched against any particular fleet due simply to the lack of airfields within operational range of the aircraft, and many of those planes came from carriers that could always be put out of action. This was completely reversed in the tighter confines of European waters. There were any number of airfields that were all within striking distance of any carrier in the North Sea or the Mediterranean, and this meant that survivability was very important. It also says something that both the Japanese and American navies would shift to armor carriers during the war. Now, even that statement needs to be qualified a bit. Just because the decision made later in the war by the Americans or the Japanese matched what the British had chosen before the war does not mean that the decision to make armored carriers was the correct one in those pre-war years. That's why it's still a question that can be an area for lively debates. It's complicated. Of course, all of the massive construction plans put in place by the Royal Navy would be derailed by the start of the war and many of the larger ships would have their construction shut down to allow for a complete refocus onto smaller ships, especially those that could be used for commerce defense. There is a lot more I could say about the Royal Navy's preparations, but I think some of that should be held until we start discussing the opening moves of the naval war sometime early next year. While the area of naval warfare saw its share of innovation, and then massive expansion in the years before the Second World War, a similar process would occur in the Royal Air Force. On April 1st, 1918, the Royal Air Force was created, making the Air Force its own independent military arm, and one that was not tied to any other service. Then when the war was over, an attempt was made to justify its funding and expansion by kind of setting itself up in an imperial policing role. The theory was that the RAF could maintain control of areas around the world, that had previously been under the protection of the British Army, but air power could accomplish the same control at a much lower cost. In the decade after 1918, a majority of the RAF was focused on this role. Then, of course, during the 1930s, concerns about the air defense plans and the capabilities on the home islands began to exert greater influence, primarily due to concerns about strategic bombing. It would be in 1932 that Stanley Baldwin would use his famous phrase, the bomber will always get through, during a speech advocating for disarmament. Over the course of the 1930s, the threat of Germany launching a strategic bombing campaign against Britain was a concern that would drive a lot of planning and preparations. The desire to be able to launch a similar campaign in return, or even to prevent one from happening at all with first strike capabilities, would then alter the course of RAF rearmament. I'm going to stop here with the RAF, just a bit of a teaser. Obviously, there is a massive amount more to say on the topic of air power and strategic bombing, but I'm going to save most of that conversation until episode 92, where we will start a dedicated series on air power theory and application during the interwar years, and how nations around Europe and the world prepared for a future air war. A big part of those episodes will be about the choices made by the RAF and how it manifested in the planes that they were building during rearmament. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next time for episode 90, in which we will look at the British Army and its path through rearmament, as not only did it have to decide what it wanted to spend rearmament funds on, it had to figure out what it was even going to do if a war started. <laughs>